0: Hello, and welcome to the teaching ministry of Impact Family Church. For more information, including service times and directions, or to find out more about us, you can visit our website at www.impactfamilychurch.com. We trust you'll be blessed by today's message. Brother Cook, come on around. Glory to God. We love you and appreciate you. God bless so much, you. Pastor Praise the Lord. Thank you. Don't you appreciate your pastors? They are awesome and... Uh, as I was driving here tonight, I called my wife just to touch base with her, see how her day was going, and she said, please be sure to tell them, she said, that church, she said, Impact and Anderson's, have they have helped us from day one. She couldn't remember it, but it must have been right way back from the very beginning. She said, that church has been so faithful helping us, and uh, so, again, thank you for having it on your heart to adopt us and help us do the things we do, and we rep- Appreciate that, and uh, just remember that God will bless the money you've sown, not the money you've blown. I know this church doesn't blow any money, but uh, anyway, I'm I'm going away, just happy to have know that have that new knowledge now. Um, That is really really good. Well, you know, in talking about the supernatural, um, we'll probably never go further in that realm than our obedience to the Holy Spirit. Because it, he, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers. How many of you know, what was it Brother Hagen used to say? He said, I can't heal a gnat's a eye, and a gnat's a, 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 a eyeball or a fly's wing or something like that. You know, so we, we, how many of you know, we don't look to ourselves. And that's why it's the name of Jesus and it's the Holy Spirit. And I was, I was just thinking tonight, um, a friend of mine, he's a pastor up in Washington State and uh, one one Sunday he was not preaching at his own church. He had gone to preach for another pastor in one city and then was going to a little different town, the Sunday night service. He was preaching at two different churches. And so he preaches Sunday morning and normal service, you know, nothing out of the ordinary happened. And uh, But he's driving out of town and he's got a ways to go before he gets to his second church, the one he's preaching at that night. And he said, he's driving down the road and he said, the Holy Spirit spoke to him and just said these words, you're not done yet. And he said, What? And, and 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 the Holy Spirit said, You're not done yet. And he realized there's something at this church I was just at. I need to go back to the church. And he's thinking, but Lord, you know, I I, I gotta be at, you know, such and such a place and such. How many of you know sometimes we get messing with it in our head? And um, so but he decides, I'm just gonna obey the Holy Spirit. And so he turns around and drives back to the church, and he described it to me. He said this church had several steps going up to the main doors. And he said as he pulls in the parking, he said, I was going pretty fast because he said, I was, you may have been driving just like you, Miss Angela, I don't know. <laughs> Forgive me if I shouldn't have said that, but it's just, a, just something that came to me right there. So... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, but he's kind of whipped into the parking lot, and he gets out, and he starts climbing up those steps. And uh, he said, there's this guy there, and he said, he's dressed like the Marlboro Cowboy. How many of you know what he's talking about? He said, he said man, this guy had on the, the wingtip cowboy boots with silver points, and he had the, the bolo tie and had the cowboy. He said, he just looked like he stepped out of a Western movie. And as he walks up there, uh, walks up the steps, that guy's just standing there on the porch and he says, I thought you left town. And my pastor friend said, well, I was going to, and, uh, the Holy Spirit said, I'm not done yet. So he said, I guess it's your fault. And, uh, and uh, so I'll make the, uh, kind of a long story short. He, he, he prayed with him. Oh, he said, I, I guess it's your fault. He said, you'd better get born again or whatever it is you need because i got to get to my next meeting. <laughs> and um, so the guy said, yeah, I need God in my life. And so, so he prayed with him there. And here's what he found out after, after he prayed with him and led him to salvation. That guy that morning had planned to commit suicide that afternoon and he said, God, I'm going to give you a chance. He said, I'm going to go to church. And if, if the preacher says something to me that lets me know it's you, then I'll, you know, reevaluate, reconsider. But if you don't, if you don't get through to me some way, I'm going to go home and just take my life. And so he's standing on the, on the porch of the, you know, the front patio or the steps, whatever. And, uh, And then here comes the preacher, you know, screeching his tires into the parking lot right before the guy was about to go home and, you know, do that type of thing. And my friend, you know, after he led him to the Lord and found out that, you know, that was that guy's agenda for that day, um, he just said, man, he said, you know, he, he said two miracles happened that day. He said, number one is that God did that. And he said, number two is that I listened and, um, you know, we just all have to be humble enough to know that, um, you know, God can give us directions and things like that that uh, will give him opportunities to do things. What was the, the tongue in the interpreter? If you yield yourself, was that the gist of that? And so, you know, that should really be our heart's cry. Lord, I, you see, it's one thing to come and say, I need a miracle, and that's fine. If you need a miracle, praise God, come and expect. But, but one of the best places in life to be is, Lord, let me be a source or a channel for somebody else's miracle. And, uh, and that's just a really good place to be. So I thought I'd share that story with you. I want to just do something fun for a minute. I want to give away a few of our books. And um, I have a book. This is People don't really like this book. Well, they, they, when they read it, they like it. But it's called The Workbook. And the subtitle is What We Do Matters to God. And it's talking about the value and the importance of serving God. You know, both, both serving God, like volunteering in the local church, but, you know, serving God through your vocation. And uh, so um, maybe is there somebody here that you're struggling, enjoying your job? That I saw your hand right here. Would you run this back to that lady right there in the green? All right. And uh, I hope that helps you enjoy working as unto the Lord, no matter what you do. And and yes, we'll get one for Miss Angela too. And uh, we'll get that to you right after service. Here's one. We get a lot of really good feedback on this. And because it's just universal, but it's called Through the Storms. Help from heaven when all hell breaks loose. And what we do is we identify three types of storms. The storm of Jonah. How many of you know he got into a storm because of his own disobedience? And to get out of his storm, he had to repent, right? But then the disciples got into a storm in the midst of perfect obedience. That Jesus said, let's go over to the other side. And, and it was totally different than the storm of Jonah. And you know what? They got out of their storm through uh, spiritual authority and the command of faith. And then Paul in Acts 27, he got into a storm because of the disobedience of somebody else. And you know what he had to do? He just had to persevere through the storm. I know people don't like that, but there's th- there, not all storms are the same. And God will give us wisdom. You know, the enemy may attack from several different directions, but no matter how, God will give us wisdom to get out of our particular storm, to get through it. And so uh, since the title is Help from Heaven When All Hell Breaks Loose, is there anybody that that describes your year? Okay, right over here. All right, if you'd, if you'd run it over here. Now, this lady, you're wearing green too. All right, and that lady got the book who was wearing green. So for this next book, you can't be wearing green. If you're wearing green, just don't even raise your hand, all right? Now, this is a book called Grace, the DNA of God, and uh, who would like that? Right here, second row. He's wearing green. I'm not. Okay, you're not, all right. Don't, don't let him touch that book. All right. So, and then here's one I wrote. This, is, this book is about living a resurrection lifestyle, It's called Lift, Experiencing the Elevated Life. And the premise of this book is simply this. Jesus wasn't raised from the dead so that we could have an annual holiday. Jesus was raised from the dead so we could have life and power every day. And uh, the resurrection is not just for what we call Easter time with bunnies and chocolate and things like that. I like the chocolate, um, 60% chocolate. Uh, but uh, uh, if, if you'd like uh, that, that lady right there in the back, uh, Brother Greg, would you be so kind? All, all the way in the back corner there, make sure she's not wearing anything green. All right. Well, let's go ahead, um, if we could pop up our slide, I think we're going to be talking about Antony, is he our next guy? If we could go to the next slide. Uh, I really dislike what the artists did. They made him look so sad. Uh, and the people that knew him said he actually was radiant with joy. But leave it to somebody religious to have to make somebody looking sad like he just lost his dog and <laughs> his pickup truck broke down. But Antony, uh, Athanasius uh, was one of the most prominent people in church history, uh, uh, won't go into the detail, but one of the most respected people in all of church history, knew him and did a little traveling with him. And Athanasius wrote of Antony, the Lord healed the bodily ailments of many present through Antony, and he cleansed others from evil spirits, and he sympathized, he had compassion, and he prayed with those Uh, who suffered, often the Lord heard him on behalf of many, but he did not boast because he was heard. Isn't that something? Nor uh, did he murmur if he was not, and those who were healed were taught not to give thanks to Antony. Isn't that powerful? See, sometimes we get too too much looking at the person. And instead of looking to the Lord, they were taught not to give thanks to Antony, but to God alone. Antony also said this, next slide. He said, talking about one, this is a a place where he went and did some evangelism in a particular city. And it says, for in that place, the Lord also cleansed many of demons and healed those who were mad. And many Greeks asked that they might simply touch the old man. See, he lived to be 105, So he's close, he's getting... (laughs) Believing that they should be profited. Assuredly, as many became Christians in those few days as one would have normally seen converted in a year. And so again, we're just marching through time. And uh, let's go to our next slide. Uh, A guy named Basil of Caesarea. Uh, Some of the people who study church history... Extensively say that Basil, uh, who he died in the middle of the fourth century, yeah, kind of toward the end of the fourth century, that he had a better understanding of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit than almost anybody among the early church fathers. He really understood who the Holy Spirit was and how he operated. And Basil said this He said, when the stream of doctrine is gushing forth in the church, now, I, see, I'm a teacher, and I really like that statement, the a stream of doctrine gushing forth. See, anointed teaching is not dry. Amen. Sometimes we think teaching is dry and boring. Well, not when it's anointed by the Holy Spirit, it's not. And he said when the stream of doctrine is gushing forth in the church and a devout heart is welling up with the gifts of the Spirit... Well, why would he be talking about the gifts of the Spirit if they'd all passed away? These, these people were still experiencing the gifts of the Spirit. just like we saw tonight, tongues and interpretation. And, and the, a devout heart is welling up with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do you not gladly give your attention? Do you not receive this favor with thanksgiving? That's basal. Let's look at the next slide on him. He said, what a powerful statement this is. He said, the Spirit is ever-present, meaning the Spirit has not left. Notice he didn't say, well, the Holy Spirit used to be in the church, but boy, he he just went on a long extended break a few hundred years ago. We haven't heard from the Holy Spirit since. No, he said, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit is ever-present and works as need requires in prophecies or in healings, or in some other actual carrying into effect of his potential action. You know what he's saying there? The Holy Spirit will do whatever needs to be done to get the job done. That's Basil of Caesarea. He was over in what today is the nation of Turkey uh, back in that day. Next slide is uh, Augustine. You may have never heard of any of these other people that we've talked about, but I know because of where we live in Florida, you know about Augustine because he got a city named after him in this, con- in this state, St. Augustine. When you see that city, drive to that city, go vacation there, it's named after this guy. And you say, Hippo, what, what it, what's, what's the Hippo? Well, he, he, he was a northern African church father. He was from modern-day Algeria. And, um, you know, a few hundred years later, the Muslims came through and that all became, you know, heavily Islamic but, um, and, and unfortunately is to this day. But before that, Augustine uh, was considered to be the greatest intellect in, of the Christian scholars since the Apostle Paul. And um, he, he used to, in his early days, he was kind of like a lot of people were. He had never really seen a miracle. And then, But he did say, well, I did see when he was up in Italy in Milan, He said, I did see a blind guy get healed once, but he said, I just thought that was just a fluke, that was just an anomaly. But in the last six years of his pastorate in what today is Algeria, uh, he began to see a lot of people in his church get healed. And he, he, he said, even now, therefore, many miracles are worked. The same God who worked those we read of still performing them, by whom he will and as he will. He wrote a book in his latter years called The City of God and he he recorded seventy specific testimonies of miracles. Most of them were healing types of miracles, but he recorded seventy, seven zero. And having written about seventy miracles, look at what he said after that. Next slide. He said, I cannot record all the miracles I know. Well, he'd already recorded 70 of them. He said, I cannot record all the miracles I know. And doubtless, several of our adherents or church members, our followers, uh, when they read what I have narrated, will regret that I have omitted so many, which they as well as I certainly know. Even now, I beg these persons to excuse me and to consider how long it would take me to relate all those miracles which the necessity of finishing the work I have undertaken forces me to omit. He recorded, and I've read them all, he recorded 70 miracles, and he went into a little bit of detail about each one, and then he says, but I can't write about all of them. And he said, and some of my church members are going to be upset. You know human nature. Hey, pastor, why, you know about my healing. Why didn't you put my healing in there? And so he's ahead of time. He's heading off a problem before it surfaces. He says, hey, church members, I couldn't get to everybody's miracle. Forgive me for not being able to record your miracle. He said, just, you know, 70's a good round number. That's where he cut it off. And and then he apologized for not being able to, you know, record all of them. One thing Augustine said. Her next statement for him. He said, "I I like this. I spent 22 years in pastoral ministry, and of course, even working and traveling with Brother Hagen. How many of you know Brother Hagen was not against doctors? Brother Hagen paid for people to go to doctors. And Pastor Hagen, you know, one of his." You know, statement says the natural and the supernatural working together makes an explosive force for God. Did you know the apostle Paul traveled with the doctor? Luke, who wrote the gospel of Luke, who is Paul's... one of his primary traveling companions, was a physician. And I bet you anything, I can't prove this, but nobody can disprove it. I bet you when Paul went through some of those whippings and beatings and his back was open from whips and stuff... I bet you he said when he got out of prison, I bet he said, Luke, you got some of that ointment? Boy, rub that ointment in there. Uh, So anyway, Augustine said this. He said, the Holy Spirit, too, works within that the medicine externally applied may have some good results. He wasn't against doctors. Um, Now, Pastor Edward, I don't know what your experience has been, but when, when I was in pastoral ministry... You know, we did a lot of hospital visiting. And um, I know sometimes church members would be a little bit, you know, wow, well, you know, they'd feel a little bit guilty because they're... And we'd always encourage, look, man, you've come for help. And these doctors want to help you. And, uh, and, and don't be discouraged. Don't be under any condemnation. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to add our faith with you that the doctors are going to have wisdom. And uh, how many of you know doctors aren't perfect? They're practicing medicine. You understand what I'm saying? But thank God for good, caring doctors uh, that are conscientious and that type of thing. But what we would do, I mean, I saw this so much is that we would pray for somebody. And uh, one very early in ministry, I prayed, uh, what was it? I prayed the night before a lady had surgery. She was going to have like seven tumors removed. And the next morning, they did a final whatever it was, CAT scan, or I don't know what kind of scan it was, and right before they took her into surgery, and, and those tumors were there, weren't there were there anymore, and they canceled the surgery and sent her home, said, you don't need this, I, we don't know how this happened or what, but those aren't there, but what happened more, uh, in my experience, now other people may have totally different experiences, but we would pray Before people, for example, if they're going to have surgery, we would pray that God would give the doctors wisdom, that he would guide them, uh, but above and beyond whatever the doctors could do, that God would supernaturally work in that person's life to to expedite the healing process. And I cannot tell you how many times over a 22-year period where somebody would say, well, the doctor said I was going to be in for seven days of recovery and all that. And three days later, they call and say, hey, I just want to let you know I'm at home. And I, But I thought you said you are going to be in for seven days. Well, that's what the doctor said, but he said, man, I've come along so fast that they, they found no reason to keep me, and, and they're just shocked how quickly everything's, you know, no complications and things like that. And so don't ever, you know, it's not an issue of, you trust God, or you use medicine. Listen, if you use medicine, keep trusting God. Okay. So, uh, but Augustine had that way back when. He he nailed that really well. Let's go to our next slide. Uh, we're jumping. If you anybody here grew up Catholic? Anybody here grew up Catholic? We got this is the Catholic corner back here. All right. Um, so I saw one hand over here. Yeah, you might want to go sit with these people. They're all the. This is the Catholic corner. And I saw another hand or two here. But uh, you, you probably will remember the name of Gregory. They called him Gregory the Great, and um, he was a, He was one of the popes. And of course, uh, over time things changed. Uh, there were times when the church uh, maybe didn't have all the things that were added later. John Calvin, who was the Uh, next to Martin Luther was probably the most influential voice in what we call the Protestant Reformation. And how many of you know, I'm not being mean about anything, I'm just saying, how many of you know they didn't get along real well back then? Some real conflict. And John Calvin said, I'm just telling you what John Calvin said, John Calvin said that Gregory was the last good pope. Okay? So I'm just telling you what he said. But Gregory was a very evangelistic pope. He sent out different missionary teams to spread the gospel. And one of the things that Gregory said, he said, I, your unworthy servant. Oh, and by the way, he wouldn't take all these lofty titles to himself, you know, all these things that made him look. The only thing he would allow people to call him was he he would introduce them. He said, I am a servant of the servants of Christ. I'm a servant of the servants of Christ. But he said, I, your unworthy servant, know how many soldiers who have become monks in my own days, that was illegal, but some people did it anyway, left being a soldier and became a a spiritual person, Uh, have become monks in my own day, have done miracles, have wrought signs and mighty deeds. And he said, now generally, we see holy men do wonderful things, perform many miracles, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, dispel bodily sickness by touch, and predict things to come by the spirit of prophecy. And we're we're way up now into the very beginning of the 7th century. And uh, if, if we weren't trying to cover 17 centuries tonight, we would be filling in many, many more people through here. But let's jump ahead a couple hundred years to a guy over in France named... Bernard of Clairvaux. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, he was Catholic, but he was beginning to say, hey, there's a few things here that I don't think really line up with the Bible. He wasn't what we'd call a reformer per se. But long before Martin Luther started kind of saying, hey, there's some problems here, even people like Bernard were saying, hey, I've got some problems with some of these traditions that are being. You know, but yet he believed very strongly in the supernatural. He said, talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit communicates himself for the working of miracles in signs and wonders and other supernatural operations, which he affects by the hands of whomever he pleases. Now look at this. I love this phrase, renewing the wonders of bygone times. Meaning, these miracles aren't just for ancient history. The Holy Spirit, if we'll listen, he'll renew these wonders that used to happen. Meaning, they'll be renewed and we'll see them again. And he said, so that the events of the present, meaning things we're seeing right now, confirm our belief as to those of the past. See, that's what happened to me when I got healed in 1977, when God instantly healed my back. All of a sudden, there was this light bulb moment where I said, wow, what happened to me is exactly the kinds of things that happen in the Bible. And all of a sudden, I saw there's this continuity. There's not this disconnect like the church today and then the Grand Canyon and then the early church. It's one church. There's one church, there's one Spirit. Uh, We don't have a different Holy Spirit than the early church had. And so he went on to say, He, the Holy Spirit, is bestowed on them for their benefit, for miracle working, for for salvation, for help, for consolation, and for fervor. I think that's pretty powerful. Let's go to the next slide. We're, we're, we're accelerating through the centuries very quickly. Uh, somebody asked me this morning, they said, uh, now what you cover in your book is, is or, or what you're covering today, is that in your book? Uh, what we covered today was probably 2% of what's in the book, and what we're covering tonight is probably another 2%. So uh, we're just hitting, like I said, skipping that rock across the, the top of the lake. Martin Luther... Well, he was so fascinating. Um, I I told Pastor Greg today that I've been privileged to visit a lot of biblical places. Um, I've been in Ephesus seven times. I've been in Rome, in Malta, in Crete, in Cyprus, in Egypt, in Lebanon, all over Israel, I've been to all seven churches of the book of Revelation. I've been to Athens, Corinth, Philippi. I've been to all those places, most of them several times. But then I also got the privilege of beginning to go around to church history sites like, uh, well, Martin Luther's places in Germany. I've been to three sites where he lived and preached and ministered. I've been to John Wesley's house in London and John Calvin's church in Geneva, Switzerland, and Zwingli's place in Zurich. And, and uh, a few years ago, when I went to the Martin Luther sites, uh, I told my wife, I said, honey, I can't take it anymore. I said, I've got to study this more in depth. And that's when I launched into that, that program. And spent about 30 hours a week for two and a half years studying this, all this church history, you know, things very formally. And um, I, I found it was so interesting because you know we're kind of hitting the high points, the mountain peaks tonight, but how many of you know there have been some not very good times in church history too, where a lot of folks got real into dead religion and uh, extreme ritualism and even superstition and um, things that are you know not at all biblical and and Martin Luther emerged at a time in history when, uh, the church had really, uh, the institutional church, had really, really digressed into some really unfortunate things. And the thing that really upset Martin Luther was he saw the, the institutional church was taking advantage of people financially. That's what really upset him. And they had this practice called indulgences. And, of course, the people by this time, nobody had their own Bible. It was illegal to have the Bible in your own language. When you went to church, if you were part of the institutional church in this day, the church services were in Latin. You didn't understand Latin, but and, and you weren't allowed to have a Bible. You only knew what the priest told you. okay? And so Martin Luther began to find all this very disturbing, and um, there was a practice called indulgences, And because they had created this idea of purgatory, you know, the Bible teaches there's heaven and there's hell. And like we said today, we didn't say it, Jesus said it, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that believes not shall be condemned. The Bible teaches hell and heaven. But introduced in this, something very unbiblical was purgatory. And the teaching of the day was that, well, when you die, uh, you go to purgatory to suffer for, you know, so, yeah, Jesus died for you, but it wasn't really enough for you to go right into heaven. And so you're going to go to purgatory and you're going to suffer maybe thousands of years. And, and the word purgatory comes from the same word we get the word purged, So you had to go suffer. So kind of like Jesus suffered for your sins, but maybe it wasn't quite enough, so now you need to go suffer your own self. And then the church started doing this thing where they would say, but have we got a deal for you? You know, for this amount of money, uh, we're going to sell you an indulgence. And that indulgence would get you who knows, 50 years off purgatory, 100 years off pur- and a lot of times it was combined with religious works. Um, in Rome, I've seen it, you know, on tours of Rome. I've been in a church called St. John's Lateran Church, and they've got steps there. I don't remember, it's 21 steps, they're marble. And uh, Martin Luther, in his day, he climbed up those steps on his hands and knees Praying a prescribed prayer on every step. And then, of course, you give an offering. You know, it's got to give the offering. And then, for every step that you do and pray, you get nine years off purgatory. Or he did it for his grandfather. So his grandfather would get time off purgatory. And there's two steps that have a cross on it. You get double. Get 18 years off on those steps. It's like double miles with your airline credit card. And Martin Luther, you know, while he was still a good Catholic monk, he does that. And um, he gets up to the top and says, who knows if this is true? Who knows if this stuff is true? And he went back and really started studying the Bible and just came to the conclusion, please understand, I don't have any ill will toward anybody. I I love people from all different backgrounds and all different groups, but I do believe we need to look at history and we need to look at what does the Bible say and and make decisions for ourselves as to, you know, what we believe is really what the Holy Spirit was speaking and and uh, he came to this conclusion that uh, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by you know, giving money to the church. Now, listen, I'm a big believer in bringing your tithes and offerings, but I hope you're not doing that because you think that you're going to be go to heaven because you gave money to the church. If you think you're going to give money and that's going to, you're going to buy your way into heaven, number one, I know you haven't been to this church very long because I know... What this church teaches, you're saved by grace through faith. We're not, we're not giving in order to try to get God to love us. We're giving because he does love us. We're not giving trying to get saved. We're giving in gratitude that we are saved by what Jesus did on the cross. But so that's the dilemma that Martin Luther, so he, he wasn't known for a lot of healings and miracles and things like that. But one time he was in the year 1523, he was preaching a sermon on John 14:12. Can anybody tell me what John 14:12 says? Do you remember that off the top of your head? That's where Jesus said, verily I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do. Because I go to the Father. Do you know what? That's pretty challenging. But Jesus, in another place, Jesus said, As my Father has sent me, so send I you. And so Jesus said that if we believe on him, we would do the works that he did and that we would do even greater works. So what's Martin Luther going to do with a verse like this? This is a direct quote from a sermon of his in 1523. We must allow these words to remain and not gloss over them as some have done. Who said that these signs were manifestations of the Spirit in the beginning of the Christian era and that now they have ceased. That is not right. He said, for the same power is in the church still. Now, he was so busy fighting his way out from all the things. He didn't have a lot of time to think about healing or focus on these. He was just trying to help people understand that you're saved by faith. That was his assignment for his generation. But he had a little bit of foresight to understand that, hey, if Jesus said it, it's true. Let's go to the next slide with Luther. Um, he had a nearby pastor in a neighboring town write him about a guy who was seriously ill and that the doctors couldn't help him. They didn't know what to do. And here's, this is from one of Luther's letters. He wrote back to this pastor and said, this must be counteracted by the power of Christ and with the prayer of faith. This is what we do and we have been accustomed to it. For a cabinet maker here was similarly afflicted with madness, and we cured him by prayer in Christ's name. Now, uh, Luther had two, he had several helpers, you know, he had several assistants, and uh, one of them, let's go to the next slide, um, was a guy named Friedrich Myconius. And Myconius uh, was sick, to borrow the biblical phrase, he was sick nigh unto death. And he wrote Luther a letter because he lived in another town. He writes Luther a letter and basically says, Martin, I'm about to die. It was good knowing you. Great to work with you. God bless you. I'm, I'm out of here. And Luther writes him back and says, may God not let me hear so long as I live that you are dead, but cause you to survive me I pray this earnestly and will have it granted, and my will shall be done herein. Amen. Myconius gets the letter, the return letter from Luther that says, you know, I'm not going to hear that you're dead, you're going to outlive me. He gets the letter, gets healed, and then outlives Luther by two years. And he said that when he got Luther's letter and read it, he said, it's like I heard the Holy Spirit say, Lazarus, come forth. Uh, Luther had another associate. His closest associate of all was a guy named um, Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon was in a similar case just on on death's door. And he lived in the same town as Luther. So Luther went to see him personally and he was kind of almost, today we'd probably call it comatose or close to comatose, and Luther goes in and prays for him, and, and, and he kind of comes to, and uh, Luther tells him, hey, Philip, you can't die. I need you in this, you know, work of reforming the church. And uh, Melanchthon said, no, I don't want, I'm just, I want to die. I, have you ever been so sick you just wanted to die? You know, and that's where Melanchthon was And uh, Luther said, no, you get up. And uh, he he said, I'm going to get you some soup. And he said, you have to eat. And and Melanchthon said, no, I don't want to eat. Luther said, if you don't eat, I'm going to excommunicate you. (laughs) And uh, threatened him. And uh, so anyway, long story short, uh, Melanchthon got healed, raised up from his deathbed. And he said, you know, I would have died had it not been for the prayers of Luther. So, he's, again, he's not known as some great healing evangelist, but he saw the power of God in, in some situations. Real quickly, let's move on. Uh, anybody here know any Quakers? How, who, who do you know? Cooper Beatty, one of our teachers at Bible school, was a Quaker. Uh, you guys know any? Now, you may not know them as Quakers. Today, they're more often called the Friends, the Society of Friends. And uh, if you don't know any, how many of you have ever eaten Quaker oats? Okay, well, that all goes back. That was William Penn, founded Pennsylvania. He was a Quaker. He was good friends with this guy. George Fox was the founder of the Quakers. And he talks about his ministry. He said, the Lord's power broke forth. He's talking about when he's preaching in different places. The Lord's power broke forth and I had great openings and prophecies and spoke unto them of the things of God which they heard with attention and silence and went away and spread the fame thereof. Many great and wonderful things were wrought or produced by the heavenly power in those days. For the Lord made bare his omnipotent arm and manifested his power to the astonishment of many by the healing virtue whereby many have been delivered from great infirmities and the devils were made subject through his name. Do you see what I see? There's this stream of the supernatural. Now, all this time, there were groups getting real traditional and real religious, but you always had this stream of people that were open to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the next slide real quick. One of his friends, uh, George Fox's friends, described some of the meetings that he was in. He said, we received often the pouring down of the Spirit upon us and the gift of God's holy eternal Spirit as in the days of old. Notice they're referring to the original Pentecost. And he said, and our hearts were made glad and our tongues were loosed and our mouths were opened and we spoke with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance and as his Spirit led us which was poured down upon us on sons and daughters. You remember that first, one of the very first slides we looked at today? It's where D.L. Moody said every denomination began in revival. Every denomination began in revival. Let's look at the next slide. This is a guy you may have never heard of, and you may look at his name and say, wow, that's a funny name. I'm glad that's not my last name. But Nicholas von Zinzendorf uh, was a church leader, Uh, In the 1700s, he was born, very similar time to when John Wesley was born. And actually, people don't know Zinzendorf, but if it hadn't been for this guy, you would have probably never heard of John Wesley. Uh, Zinzendorf lived in the very far eastern part of Germany, and he was the founder of a group called the Moravians. How many of you have heard of the Moravians or the United Brethren? If you go up to Winston-Salem, Salem was a Moravian settlement. If you go to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Bethlehem was a uh, Moravian settlement. They came out of Zinzendorf's work in Germany. And they, one of the things they're very famous for is that somewhere in the 1720s, was 1726 or something like that, maybe it's 27, they had on their property. Uh, he, he housed and, and allowed a whole bunch of Christian refugees who had been persecuted throughout Europe. He allowed them to come and basically build a village, a community on his large estate. He inherited a lot of money and he allowed them to come and build a community where they could be safe and not suffer the persecution that they 'd experienced for a couple hundred years uh, and uh, In the mid-late 1720s, they had what's called the Moravian Pentecost. And uh, signs. you can see his statement here. He said, to believe against hope is the root of the gift of miracles. I owe this testimony to our beloved church that apostolic powers are there manifested. What he's saying is the same types of miracles, healings, and supernatural things that happened in the days of the apostles are happening in our church today. And he went on to say, We have had undeniable proofs in the healing of maladies in themselves incurable, such as cancers, tuberculosis, when the patient was in the agonies of death, all by means of prayer or of a single word. And one thing that was interesting about Zinzendorf, he didn't allow anybody to make a big deal about miracles. He just said, hey, we're not going to magnify miracles, we're going to magnify Jesus. And he actually kept his movement on pretty good track because of that. But what they're really most known for is that when this uh, Moravian Pentecost occurred, several of the people, it wasn't a large group at all, um, but the people said, you know what, we need to pray. And they started a prayer meeting and they did their prayer meeting. They, they didn't have that many people, but they divided up the clock and people would take one hour time and they filled up the clock seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Somebody was praying. They did that for a 100 years. This was a 100-year prayer meeting and by the end of that 100 years, the Moravians had done more for world missions than really pretty much every other group combined. Let's go to Wesley, um, our next slide. Wesley, he was an Anglican. Now, how many of you know what Anglican is? That's Church of England, that's high church, it's very formal and you know, kind of sort of like the Catholics except, you know, they broke off and the king or queen became the head of the church instead of the pope. But Wesley was an Anglican. His father was an Anglican priest and Wesley was too. He went to Oxford, which means he was smart. And um, he was not only a student and graduate of Oxford, but he became a professor at Oxford. And he was extremely religious He was extremely devout, and his whole thing was we have to really work hard to become holy. And that's why many times his name is associated with holiness. But the problem with Wesley was that he really didn't, in the early days, he really didn't understand mercy and grace. He basically thought you have to earn your salvation by your good works, he was on a ship. Uh, did you know that Wesley was a missionary to America? Uh, anybody know where he was based? Not far from here, Savannah, Georgia. How far is that? Four hours. He was a, he was a missionary to Savannah along with his brother Charles for two years and four months. But something happened on the way over. Now he he was a religious leader. He was he was a priest. He was a a pastor. He was actually the chaplain of the whole ship that was coming over. but The ship got in a really bad storm, and it looked like the ship was going under, and Wesley was terrified. Do you know why he was terrified? Because he realized, I don't know if I'm saved or not. Because see, he was thinking, I have to get really, really holy in, in order for God to accept me. Here's something to always remember. Holiness is not... The way to Christ. Christ is the way to holiness. Holiness is a byproduct. Okay? So anyway, so he's sitting there thinking, man, if this ship goes down and it looks like it was going to, he thought, I'm, I may not make it to heaven. And you know what happened? He heard singing. It was down in the belly of the ship. And it was all these families. And they were down there joyfully full of faith, praising and worshiping God, and he could tell, they've got a peace that I don't have. Do you know who those people were? Moravians. That was a group from Zinzendorf who'd come over to do missionary work as well. The only difference was they were saved and Wesley wasn't. And uh, how many of you know you can be religious and not be saved? How many of you know you can be a preacher and not be saved? All right. And um, so he had many conversations with them. He had a miserable time in Georgia. Uh, He wrote in his journal, he said, I came to, I think he said America, I came to America to save the heathen, but who will save me? He goes back to England, and you know what he does? He goes to a Moravian Bible study. And he hears them reading, and he he had a lot of conversations with Moravians, and, and he, he writes in his journal, he said, I went to this meeting, and he said at about a quarter till nine, as the preacher was reading Martin Luther's commentary on Romans chapter one, the just shall live by faith, he said, my heart was strangely warmed. And he said, and I knew that I did trust Christ. Christ. See, sometimes the hardest people to get through to are the people who think that they're going to do it on their own. They're going to do it by their effort and their performance and their works. And that was where Wesley was. And so he had this experience. So you know where Wesley goes then? He takes a trip to Germany and he spends three months with Zinzendorf where they had the Pentecost of miracles and healings and different things. He comes back to London, and and now he's had an, a, a new birth experience, probably had kind of an infilling of the Holy Spirit experience at, with the Moravians. And you know what? They have a, a midnight January 1st New Year's Eve service, and guess what happens? At about 3 in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy, and many fell to the ground. They had people being slain in the Spirit. They had people falling under the power. And he said, as soon as we were recovered a little, you ever have a service where you had to recover As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. See, Wesley had he had been affected by that the the spiritual outpouring from that hundred year prayer meeting, and and he comes back to and he brings the same blessing back, and then it marked his ministry from that time forward. Wesley died, I'm trying to think, he was 88, I think, when he died, and uh, saw all kinds of healings. All kind, He prayed for his horse. His horse got healed. Uh, Wesley prayed for one guy, and boy, you get every indication that he went to pray for the guy when the guy was sick, but he got there kind of late, and Wesley talks about the guy was cold and motionless and not responsive, and Wesley prayed for him. And he said his body began to warm up, and he sits up, and Wesley really believed, he didn't make a big deal out, but he really believes that God raised the guy from the dead. Let's look at another slide on Wesley. Um, a guy wrote Wesley and really attacked him. Wesley was hated because you know, he was pretty radical for his day. And, and one guy wrote him a scathing letter and said, you claim that people get healed in your meetings. And Wesley writes the guy back. And Wesley says, as it can be proved by the abundance of witnesses that these cures were frequently, indeed almost always, the instantaneous consequences of prayer, your inference is just. Isn't that an eloquent way of just saying you're right? Yep, we do get people healed in our meetings. He said, I cannot, dare not affirm that they were purely natural I believe they were not. I believe many of them were wrought by the supernatural power of God. Now, Wesley made one statement. Let's go to the next slide that is tremendously prophetic. And again, I'm not against anybody. I love everybody. I want all groups to do good and, you know, that type of thing. But um, I, Now, he, Wesley is the founder of Methodism. And actually, there's about 35 different denominations that came out of his influence. Methodists, Nazarenes, uh, any kind of holiness group tended to come out of Wesley, but Methodism is the most prominent one. How many of you know, have you followed kind of what's going on in that sphere? Um, They're about to have a massive split over the issue of gay clergy and performing, same-sex marriage, and that type of thing. and uh, But here's what Wesley said. Uh, he said this when he was 83 years old. So he had, he had had a lot of wisdom and experience. He said, I'm not afraid that people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. You think that might be a little bit on the prophetic side? Yeah, very, very much. But see, Wesley had lived long enough to have seen enough church history to know that groups will start full of fire, full of the Spirit... And then you just give them a few generations, and and people will mess it up, you know. People will religify it, and uh, you know. And I say this with all love and respect and appreciation. I I married a Methodist girl in a Methodist church. I got saved at a Methodist youth retreat and got spirit filled when the hunters. That was at a Methodist church. My mother was Methodist. My grandparents were so. I love the Methodist, but you know, you can't uh, just decide uh, we're gonna we're going to establish our own values and ignore what the Bible says it doesn't matter who you are and Wesley foresaw that so let's let's move on uh, Jonathan Edwards we ought to touch on somebody in America Jonathan Edwards was born the exact same year that Wesley was and whereas Wesley did most all of his work in England uh, Jonathan Edwards did all his work up in the Northeast up in Massachusetts, that area. Uh, anybody ever hear of this sermon? A lot of people know the sermon, but they don't know Jonathan Edwards. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And uh, people think that he must have just been some hellfire. You know, Jonathan Edwards read his sermons word for word without any emotion. So he wasn't this theatrical, you know, he... He, was, he just read his sermon, which was very common back then. But what would happen, is and, and most of what he preached on was not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but he preached a lot about the love of God and the mercy of God and things like that. But he did have, uh, they had just anything that you can imagine at any modern-day charismatic meeting, they had it back then. People falling out, they had people fall out under the power while he was preaching and be, we would say, stuck on the ground for 24 hours. Wouldn't get up to go to the bathroom or anything. That's a miracle right there. And uh, people would, it, it went on enough that people would hear about, they'd come from other towns and and walk in the church. How long has that person been down there? Well, 22 hours now. I started look at my watch. They didn't have watches. 22 hours, you know. And uh, and then they would get the same power of the Holy Spirit, and people would get convicted and cry out to God and get saved. He, he made this statement. He said the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. There was scarcely a single person in the town, old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. He saw. He was good friends with uh, George uh, Whitfield from England who was a friend of John Wesley and that type of thing. So these guys were responsible for what we... Well, they were instrumental in what we call the Great Awakening in in America. Began, depending on who you read after, around 1740 or a couple of years before. But they actually set the spiritual climate for what we call the American Revolution. So it's a long story. I won't go into it. But the spiritual influence... Uh, basically set up the the climate for the American Revolution. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, These guys had such fancy ways of saying things. You know, I would say, well, they fell under the power of God or they got slain in the spirit. So Edwards, he was an extreme intellectual. He actually, before he died, he became the president of Princeton University. He didn't get to serve in it long because he died... But, um, but that's how respected and how scholarly he was. So he couldn't just say they fell under the power of God. He had to say, therefore, it is not at all strange that God should sometimes give his saints such foretastes of heaven as to diminish their bodily strength. <laughs> that's how you explain it when you're a real brilliant type person somebody's, you know, laying under the power of God. Their bodily strength was diminished because they had a foretaste of heaven. I can go for that. That's all right. Let's see what else we have here. Um, He wrote a book. Now, how many of you know that any time there's a revival, there's an outpouring, uh, how many of you know somebody's going to get silly in the flesh? And uh, they had the same thing then. And uh, Edwards was such a meticulous theologian. And, and, of course, they were criticized by traditional churches. You know, they're fanatics. They're extremists. You know, they've got all this weird stuff, people lying on the ground shaking and all that. And, and Edwards was a really conscientious pastor he knew that some of these things were, in fact, the Spirit of God. But you know what? He also knew that some people just kind of did silly stuff on their own and got in the flesh. And, and you know what? He also realized that, that sometimes the devil can come in. And, and so being a good pastor, what did he do? He taught his people how to do what John taught, uh, prove the spirits, test the spirits Paul said, judge all things, hold fast to what is good. So in 1741, Edwards writes a book called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And he he taught his church members how to delineate the difference between this is a working of the Holy Spirit and now this is just somebody in the flesh. And this is something that maybe is a wrong spirit. You know, religious spirit coming in, and and it's a beautiful word. But he gave five main things. He said, number one, if it's a work of the Holy Spirit, you know what he said. Number one, it's going to exalt Jesus. It's going to draw attention to Jesus and glorify Him. Number two, it's going to work against the kingdom of Satan. So if Satan promotes sin and carnality and all that type of thing. A real work of the Holy Spirit is going to work against those things. It's not going to give people the idea it's okay to continue in sin. It's okay to live in sin. It's going to work against Satan's agenda. Number three, it's going to create a greater regard for the Scriptures. So if anybody ever says, man, we're having such a great revival at our church. Man, the Holy Ghost is so powerful, we don't even need the Bible anymore. No, the, the Holy Spirit's going to always point us back to the Bible. Uh, it's going to cause us to esteem the Bible as God's Word. It's never going to cause you to think, a work of the Spirit of God is never going to cause you to think that you know, what brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so said in a prophecy uh, is okay if it's contrary to the Bible. Okay? And number four, it's going it's to promote the spirit of truth and number five, it's going, to cause, it's going to cause people to love God more and love man more. You know, if somebody uh, is, is part of something that they call a work of God and, and they're being more prideful and, you know, mean toward, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit's at work, he's going to cause us to have more of the fruit of the Spirit. What, um, who was it, Origen today, I think, talked about, not only does the Holy Spirit produce all these miracles and things, but, but it, he, he does, uh, gives us a spirit of meekness and helps us have a complete change of character. I think that's pretty. See, these themes, they, the, all these wonderful men and women of God through the ages have, have patterned this way. Let's go ahead to the next slide. I would love to cover this, but we don't have time. Skip that one. Uh, skip that one. i got to tell you about Charles Spurgeon. How many of you know Charles Spurgeon was a Baptist? How many of you came out of the Baptist churches and movements? Here's something that I'd read after Charles Spurgeon, knew about him for years, but until I really dug deep, I did not know how powerfully he was influenced by the Holy Spirit. Um, He was talking about some of their prayer meetings, and he said more than once we were all so awestruck with the solemnity of the meeting that we sat silent for some moments while the Lord's power appeared to overshadow us. And all I could do on such occasions was to pronounce the benediction and say, dear friends, we have had the Spirit of God here very manifestly tonight. Let us go home and take care not to lose His gracious influences. Sounds like something Brother Hagin would have said back in the day. Some of those real solemn, holy, you know, moments... Um, there was, uh, let's go to the next slide. There was a guy named Russell Conwell. Anybody here ever hear of Temple University in Philadelphia? I'm, I'm kind of a basketball fan. So the Temple Owls, well, Russell Conwell is the guy who founded Temple University in Philadelphia. He's got a phenomenal book on divine healing. And, um, he, he was friends with Spurgeon, went over and visited with Spurgeon on different occasions. And Spurgeon, he never, ever talked publicly. I mean, if he did, it was micro-traces of praying for the sick. But in his private pastoral ministry, uh, Spurgeon prayed for the sick. And uh, Conwell, who interviewed him and interviewed people in the church, this is what Russell Conwell said about Spurgeon, There are now living and worshiping in the metropolitan tabernacle, that was Spurgeon's church, hundreds of people who ascribe the extension of their life to the effect of Mr. Spurgeon's personal prayers. They have been sick with disease and nigh unto death. He has appeared, kneeled by their beds, and prayed for their recovery. Immediately the tide of health returned. The fevered impulse became calm. The temperature was reduced and all the activities of nature resumed their normal functions within a short and unexpected period. There's a little girl that was really, the doctor said, she's gone, she's going to die. And Spurgeon went in and prayed for her. And this little girl, number one, she was completely healed and recovered. And she said, mommy, when, when, when the pastor prayed for me, she said, I felt this heat, this warmth, start at my head and just go all the way down my body. And she said, when it went down, she said, I could feel, you know, sickness or whatever leaving my body as this power went through me. So we, we could spend a lot of time on this. We won't. Let's go ahead to the next slide. Moody, we won't talk about him for time's sake because I want to get, well, William Seymour. How many of you know William Seymour? I'll tell you. All these guys, Finney, Moody, Spurgeon, all these guys, they were just, and all of them talked about, they all anticipated something really special right on the horizon. They all pretty much, without even realizing what they were saying, they pretty much all prophesied the outpouring that happened at Azusa Street. And what a lot of people don't realize, people have heard of Azusa Street in 1906, when the power of the Holy Spirit was poured out and tongues really, you know, were in strong evidence. What a lot of people don't realize, that was happening in other parts of the world too. There was an outpouring in India at a a girl's orphanage, a home for girls, and this lady who had gone to, an Indian lady who had gone to England and met Jesus in England goes back and she's running this home for orphan girls and she's got, many, many different ladies helping her. They all had an outpouring. They all got filled with the Holy Spirit, and she had those ladies going out preaching to all these villages, and, I mean, mass revival took place there. At the same time as Azusa Street, this blew my mind, there was an outpouring in Pyongyang, what today is North Korea. They had their own Azusa Street type of experience And um, now, of course, we know what's happened in North Korea, and today Christians are brutally uh, persecuted and killed. But South Korea, see, back then it wasn't North and South. It was just one nation. Uh, The the Korean Christianity, Korea is sending out more missionaries now than the United States is. So the effect of that 1906, 1907 outpouring was really remarkable. But Seymour is the guy who headed up the, uh, the movement in uh, Azusa Street. And I love his statement. He said, the Pentecostal power, when you sum it all up, is just more of God's love. If it does not bring more love, it is simply a counterfeit. But, but I'm telling you, out of uh, Azusa Street came all of the early Pentecostal denominations, and uh, it just really made a massive impact in our country. I want to close with these two slides. Billy Graham, what a respectable and honorable evangelist. Aren't you thankful for his life? He just, you know, he he was a real, um, you, you say, well, Billy Graham's not known for miracles. You know who? John the Baptist was not known for miracles. Do you know the Bible said that John did know miracles? But Billy Graham, what did he do? He just preached the gospel. And uh, Billy Graham said this. He said, today, when the gospel is proclaimed on the frontiers of the Christian faith that approximate the first century situation, what he's saying is when the gospel is being preached and the people have never heard it before, he said uh, miracles still sometimes accompany the advance of the gospel, as indicated by both the prophets Hosea and Joel, as we approach the end of the age we may expect miracles to increase. Can I tell you something? I agree with Billy Graham. As we approach the end of the age, we can expect miracles to increase. And he kind of tapering off that statement into the next slide, he said, as we approach the end of the age, I believe we will see a dramatic recurrence of signs and wonders that will demonstrate the power of God to a skeptical world Just as the powers of Satan are being unleashed with greater intensity, do you think that's happening in the earth today? Just as the powers of Satan are being unleashed with greater intensity, so I believe God will allow signs and wonders to be performed. I just learned this about a year ago. I didn't know Billy Graham had said that. You know what else I found out? I talked to somebody who was personal friends with Oral Roberts. And did you know that Oral, when now Oral was the ultimate Pentecostal. Billy was the ultimate evangelical. And uh, when Oral Roberts uh, was going to dedicate, have the dedication ceremony for Oral Roberts University, do you know who he invited to be the, the dedication speaker? Billy Graham. And I found out that he and Billy were really good friends and that when Oral Roberts visited Billy Graham at Billy Graham's home in North Carolina, on one of the very first visits, they visited many times, on one of the very first visits, Billy said to Oral, and I think they had a couple other ministers there, he said, would you guys pray for me? Isn't that humble of Billy Graham to say, would you pray for me? And um, so these ministers all gathered around Billy and they took turns praying. When it came to Oral for his turn to pray, you know what Oral did? He prayed over him in other tongues. And when he got done, he may have prayed some in English too, but he prayed over him in other tongues. And um, when he got finished with that prayer, Billy Graham turned to him and said, Oral, nobody's ever prayed for me in other tongues before. Thank you. He said, that blessed me. Thank you. And, and Oral said that every time they got together after that, that Billy would always say, Oral, pray for me in the Spirit. And, and, I mean, he wanted him to do it now. Pray for me in other tongues. And Oral really appreciated it. I also found out that or, uh, Billy, Billy Graham spoke at Evangel, Theological, Evangel Bible College at that time. Today it's university and the uh, Assembly of God. Um, Theological Seminary in Springfield, Missouri. They had Billy Graham speak to all the students, all the faculty, and of course Assembly of God is the largest Pentecostal uh, denomination at least in the country, maybe the world, I don't know. And uh, Or uh, Billy Graham gets up and gives his sermon and as soon as he's done with his sermon he said, he says, well I'm not done yet but he said, that's enough, I'm going to go ahead and turn it back over to the Uh, head of the Assembly of God, which was Thomas Zimmerman at the time. And so Billy Graham steps away from the pulpit and Thomas Zimmerman starts coming up. And in the balcony, one of the students stands up and gives a tongue. Now, how many of you know a lot of people, man, Billy Graham's here. Don't anybody do anything like that? We don't, you know, we don't want to... He's a dignitary. He's a world-famous, you know, evangelist. We don't want to do anything that... And uh, so, but Brother Zimmerman, he, he just lets it go on. Somebody gives a tongue, just like what we saw earlier today. And, uh, and then somebody else interprets it. And, uh, and then, you know, just Zimmerman closed the meeting and uh, dismissed everybody. And they go back to the back room. And, and Thomas Zimmerman says to Billy Graham, he said, uh, well, I hope today was okay. You know, and he was kind of referring to the tongue and interpretation And uh, Because he didn't know if that would have bothered Billy Graham or what. But you know what Billy Graham told him? He said, let me tell you something. He said, "Uh, I did not finish my sermon. He said, I cut my sermon short. And he said, nobody knew what I was going to preach on. But he said, that tongue and interpretation was my last point. Was the last point of my sermon. And a week later, Billy Graham was on Christian television, a national program, and they said, Billy Graham, you minister to people everywhere. You encourage people everywhere. Uh, How do you stay encouraged? And he said, well, let me give you an example. And he referred to that, and he talked about how the Spirit of God bore witness with his heart, you know, about his presence and his reality and that type of thing. So I know there's some folks that, you know, and, and I don't have any harsh you know, denunciatory criticisms, They're probably just like I was. They just have never seen it. And so they just assume, you know, it was for 2,000 years ago. But I'll tell you what, we don't have to. When I was first spirit-filled, I wanted to argue and prove I was right. And I don't want to prove I'm right. I just want to show Jesus I just want to be used by God to demonstrate love, to demonstrate if somebody's determined that, you know, this isn't for today, well, bless their heart, I'm not going to get into strife with anybody, but you know what, I want to find people that are in need and be able to pray, you know, if necessary, I'll pray in that name we're not allowed to use, and uh, I I just want to demonstrate and and share the love of God. Let's all stand up, I've gone long enough. Father, we love you tonight, and we give you praise and honor. And Lord, there's so much we didn't cover, but Lord, I pray that what we've covered is going to just stir and, and uh, uh, marinate in people's hearts and lives. Lord, what do you want to do through us? What do you want to do in us? How do you want to manifest yourself through our lives to our neighbors, to our friends, to fellow believers? Lord, how can we be used by you to encourage others? Lord, we want to be a church. I know that Pastor Edwin and Angela, I know how committed they are to the whole counsel of God's Word. Of all the churches in this nation, there's probably very, very few that have pastors that are as committed to the fullness of your Word and the fullness of your Spirit. And so, Lord, just let all of us hook up fully in that. Lord, we really we want the genuine, we desire the, the genuine, the real. And Lord, we just want to—we want to be a people that are so full of the love of God, so full of the Spirit of God, that your gifts just have full course, freedom to work in us and through us. And and Lord, not just in church services, but Lord, at our place of work, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, in our families, that Lord, we'll just be so full that. Uh, You'll just be glorified through our lives and that we will fully embrace this whole idea that so many of these talked about partnership with the Holy Spirit. Lord, we desire that with all of our hearts.